0: Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Journal podcasts in conversation.
1: Hello, and welcome to the June twenty twenty two episode of the EVJ in Conversation podcast. I am your host, Rhiannon Morgan. Today, we're covering a review of Rhodococcus equi pneumonia in foals. The paper has been published in the May edition of the journal and is titled "Rhodococcus equi foal pneumonia: Update on epidemiology, immunity, treatment, and prevention." We're very lucky to have three of the four authors of the paper with us today. Laura Huber is an Assistant Professor of Epidemiology at Auburn University. Angela Bourdain is an Assistant Professor in the Large Animal Clinical Sciences Department at Texas A&M University. And Macarena Sands is an Associate Professor of Equine Medicine at Washington State University. Thank you very much to Laura, Macarena and Angela for joining me Um, at the same time we've managed to get everyone together to talk about this great review of Rhodococcus equi foal pneumonia. So we're going to start off with Laura um, talking about epidemiology. Laura, this this review highlights a recurring theme centered around the impact of screening on the epidemiology of Rhodococcus equi pneumonia in foals. And the subsequent emergence of antimicrobial resistance after implementing a screening program in the early 2000s. So could we start by discussing the clinical signs of *Rhodococcus equine pneumonia and when these signs start to present?
0: Hi all, thank you so much for the invite to, to speak to you today about the Rodococcus equi uh, uh, together with my colleagues. And yes, um, so for clinical signs of rotococcus equi, uh, foals are normally exposed very early in life, and clinical signs start very slowly and gradually uh, until they develop to actual clinical disease. Uh, Rotococcus equi disease is very common in young foals, um, especially from one month to to six months of age, Uh, but it can also happen in older animals as well. Uh, In the early stages of the disease, the foes may appear very normal, uh, and they might have some weight loss or uh, growth uh, retardation. As the disease gets more established, uh, bronchopneumonia is the most common uh, manifestation, and foals can present coughing, fever, lethargy, increased respiratory effort. Uh, But Also, extra pulmonary diseases, it can be very common as well, like uveitis, arthritis, or abdominal abscesses. And when those uh, happen uh, with the fall, uh, normally the, the prognosis is also a little bit worse. In uh, rare occasions, you might also see subic- subacute uh, manifestation of the disease, which I was very unfortunate to see that uh, one of the years that I was an uh, equine practitioner, and uh, those manifestations might happen uh, where falls will present very sudden onset of respiratory distress uh, that will progress rapidly to death uh, within 48 hours.
1: So how are foals usually exposed to rhodococcus equi and how does this cause the clinical signs?
0: Yeah, so foals get exposed to rhodococcus equi since the first day of life, basically, because rhodococcus is naturally present in the environment. Uh, and then the timing of exposure is very critical for the development of the disease because it kind of catches the foal uh, in a phase where uh, they are not very fully um, immune competent. Um, I think Angela is going to uh, talk more about the immunology of Vertococcus uh, equi. Um, and the infections will happen more, more commonly uh, by aspiration of the aer- aer- aerosolized bacteria. Sorry, uh, And there's some factors that might increase this uh, aerosolization and consequently higher infection rates, such as dry climate, or high density of animals in paddocks or stalls. And once Rhodococcus equi is inhaled by the foal, then it invades and replicates within the macrophages in the lungs, uh, which they might happen to evade phagocytosis and eventually uh, form lung abscesses that we see in affected foals.
1: So with respect to screening tests, can you explain what these entail and why they were instigated?
0: Yeah, so screening tests are basically ways to try to early identify the disease. So since the early 2000s, as we mentioned before, uh, many endemic farms for rhodococcus equi disease have started performing periodic uh, thoracic ultrasound to try to see the development of lung abscesses very early. So they could potentially implement antibiotic treatment uh, even even before the animal starts showing clinical signs of rotococcus pneumonia. Uh, this was considered at the time as the best chance to slow down the disease process and avoid mortality and animal suffering, especially. And we are going to talk about that too, uh, because up to date, there are many different prevention methods for Rhodococcus disease, but none of them are very highly efficient.
1: Okay, so after the screening tests were implemented, um, the prevalence of antimicrobial resistance increased significantly. In So how did this come about and what problems did this potentially cause?
0: Yeah, so the the issue with this approach is that it caused an increasing number of animals treated with antimicrobials in endemic farms every year. Um, We believe that much of this treatment was unnecessary, considering that a lot of foals with small lung abscesses will work over spontaneously without need of antibiotics. So it is understandable the need of vets to act during the early stages of disease because protococcal infections cause so many issues in endemic farms every year. Uh, However, we believe that the increase in antimicrobial treatment has contributed to the increase in prevalence of antimicrobial resistance. Uh, The issue with emergence of antimicrobial resistance is that it limits the options we have to treat affected animals that need treatment. And... Um, as well as um, limiting the access to antibiotics to humans as well, because um, macrolide uh, uh, resistance is also important for for human medicine, is one of the critically important antibiotics for human medicine. So we do have a few other options of antimicrobials rather than macrolides and rifampicin that uh, were shown to be effective in vitro against Rhodococcus equi. However, its effect in foes is still uh, to be investigated. Uh, and as an additional concern, these antimicrobial resistant genes, as I said before, they are associated with mobile elements. So they might potentially be transferred to other bacteria of public health in uh, vet health importance. So this is quite a significant issue that needs to be further explored. And this is actually what I'm focusing on uh, uh, with my research in my current job.
1: You have a, a beautifully detailed and thorough explanation of antimicrobial resistance and how it's developing. Would you be able to break that down and tell us in a simplified way how the antimicrobial resistance has developed?
0: Okay, I'll, I'll try to summarize it, uh, but before the 2001, uh, antimicrobial resistance in *Rhodococcus equi was rarely seen, and as we mentioned before, after we started treating subclinically affected foals, there has been an alarming increase in the antimicrobial resistant levels in *Rhodococcus equi against commonly used anti- antimicrobials to treat pneumonia, but uh, because foals get exposed to rhodococcus equi in the environment, we wanted to investigate what is the pre- prevalence of antimicrobial resistance in the environment of farms. And we did find that 76 out of the 100 farms that we investigated uh, had resistant rhodococcus in the environment. And of course, that we didn't have a representative analysis of the environment before the implementation of subclinical treatment of foals to say for sure that this practice was responsible for the emergence of antimicrobial in the environment. But uh, the genetic work that we have done showed that resistant rotococcus isolates are clones, indicating that this specific genotype was selected by antimicrobial pressure. So in general, I believe that our research groups have been doing a good job communicating our uh, findings with the practitioners to control the development of antimicrobial resistance. And we need to continue monitoring these farms to see the effect of changing those policies of antimicrobial use practices on antimicrobial resistant levels.
1: Okay, thank you. So I think Angela is going to talk us through the section on immunity. Um, so, Angela, how soon after birth are foals exposed to Rodicoccus equi, and how does this timeline correlate with their developing immune systems? Um, hi, everyone. Uh, so, thank you for having me here.
2: It's a pleasure to be participating in this. Um, so, as um, Laura mentioned, so Ariqua is a bacterium that's naturally um, in the environment, and, you know it's Thrives in soil and feces of herbivores, and so foals are exposed to it as soon as they're born. And from that perspective, obviously, early responses are crucial, such as those from the innate immune system, uh, because they can be rapidly activated. Um, so, in addition to that, ingestion of colostrum is important for transfer of specific antibodies against, you know, many pathogens, but uh, mostly are equa in this case, from the dam to the foal. And we have to remember too that because of the because our equi is everywhere, um, foals are constantly being exposed and mounting an innate and both arms of the adaptive immune responses, humoral and cell-mediated responses. Um, although the adaptive immunity uh, takes longer to develop than the innate responses, um, for example, in in healthy adult horses, it takes. Um, 10 to 14 days to develop a mature antigen-specific immune response after the initial exposure. And in foals, it has been shown that it takes many weeks.
1: As far as I understand, um, both the adaptive and the innate immune responses play a role in the foals' response to Rhodococcus equi. So how do these cell-mediated immune responses tackle equi, And how quickly after birth do these responses become effective? So, um, so there's evidence that both um, innate and
2: adaptive immune responses play a role in protecting foals against um, pneumonia or equine pneumonia. Um, so cell-mediated responses can be you know, divided in two. So either CD4 positive or T helper cells or a CD8 um, cytotoxic T-cells, um, so for CD4-positive uh, T-cells, they produce cytokines, and that will activate macrophages, which um, are the cells that, you know, are equally preferentially infects, and so that cytokine um, will increase their bactericidal capacity, so they will kill more the bacteria inside macrophages. Um, so cd t cells, they can directly recognize and kill um, infected cells with our equi. And to answer the second part um, about the time of when um, this cell, CMI or cell-mediated immunity is effective, um, the short answer is that there's not a specific age that we can tell the foals have a mature um, CMI response, but it definitely increases with age. And we have to remember that uh, foals are born without no cell-mediated immune responses against our equi or mostly any pathogen. Um, So the reason for that is, first of all, obviously, because they haven't been exposed to that yet. But it's not really um, completely understood. But it could be also because their cells don't function um, like an adult mature cell. In other words, for example, for CD4-positive T cells, they produce less cytokines. Um, and it could also be because the actual number of cells producing um, the cytokine is lower and that increases with age. So instead of the production per cell. Um, um, but just to give you an estimate of time, for example, in one study, uh, in newborn foals that received um, a vaccine um, contained live REQI orally, um, CD80 cells were detected um, at three, three, you know, three weeks of age. Uh, but in control folds that did not receive the vaccine, they only um, developed at five weeks. Um, so they did develop because of the background exposure, um, but it took longer.
1: And with respect to humoral responses, how do these responses help protect against infection? Um, so exactly how uh, each component of the immune system um,
2: impacts either the fate of our equi inside the cells or the development or not of lung abscesses and the progression from subclinical to clinical disease. It's not currently known, uh, but we do know that antibodies provide some level of protection. Um, an example of that is the use of uh, plasma from hyperimmunized donors, which is called the hyperimmune plasma. Uh, and these antibodies work, uh, we think they work mainly by opsonizing or tagging uh, the bacteria to be more easily found by phagocytes. Um, and more easily phagocytose, which would then increase the killing of the equine side. But there are also other mechanisms that are less studied, such as the antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity or ADCC, or even direct extracellular or intracellular killing. Um,
1: and, and lastly, moving on to the innate immunity response, um, how do these compare to the adaptive responses and what other roles do they play?
2: Um, so I think I could be speaking about this for like two hours here, but I'm going to try to give you a short answer. Um, so the innate immune responses are very uh, different from adaptive um, immune responses. So innate immune cells such as you know macrophages and neutrophils, they can be rapidly activated in case of an infection just to directly kill the invaders. Uh, but they also present antigens to adaptive cells. So there is no protective adaptive immunity without an effective innate immunity. Um, as, as we mentioned before, foals are infected soon after birth and adaptive immunity takes long to, longer to develop. So foals in that period, um, soon after birth, they depend heavily on these innate cells. Um, so neutrophils, for example, were shown to be important in protection against our eco infection. Um, you know, macrophages are the first cell to be um, the preferential cells to be infected by our equi. Uh, and the exciting part is that their responses can be stimulated in newborn foals, um, which is obviously an important aspect for potential vaccine development, both as, a, a, you know, adjuvants, um, but also as broad-spectrum vaccines. And, uh, and the last thing I'll say, uh, so the enteral um, administration of live our equi, so oral our equi, um, has been shown by other research groups to be protective against intrabronchial infections. So you give at birth oral or equi, and that's, you know, experimental. Um, that's not something that we would do, you know, in the farm. But experimentally, we've shown, there's evidence that when you give to newborn foals oral or equi, then later on you come and you infect them with intrabronchially. So putting directly in the lungs, or equi, uh, they are protected. Um, But all the studies so far, they usually focus on adaptive immunity, so cell-mediated and humoral immunity. And our laboratory is currently studying the role of innate immune cells um, with this um, vaccination um, strategy, let's say, and and the mechanisms involved in this protection. uh, And we hope to publish these results um, very soon.
1: Thank you very much for talking us through that section, Angela. I think we're going to move on to treatment now with Macarena. Um, So Macarena, how are subclinical and clinical disease defined with respect to rhodococcus? And what treatment or monitoring strategies are used for the different stages of disease?
3: Yeah, thanks, um, Rhiannon, for for having us here. Um, I'm going to start with the clinical disease because I think that's the easiest. Um, So clinical, you know, these are the faults that, Usually, you see they develop fever or they're lethargic, not playing around with other foals. And that's why they're recognized by, by the farm personnel as not being healthy. Um, so then when you look, they will have other clinical signs, um, usually of pneumonia, if they have the pulmonary form, which is the most common. Um, we'll talk about the, non, you know, the extra pulmonary in a minute. But, you know, increased respiratory rate, they may have a little bit of nostril flare, increased um, respiratory effort, um, may have nasal discharge, some of them cough. Um, some of these signs are very subtle, so they might only have the fever and lethargy at first, and then as the disease progresses or if the disease is more severe, then those clinical signs um, are more evident. When it's um, the non Pulmonary form like abscesses somewhere else, then the clinical signs are probably less specific um, to a general. So it's harder to say they're more specific to the location. So if they're like you know septic physis, then they will maybe lame. If they're um, an intra abdominal abscess, they may not have any clinical signs um, until it's later and it's creating a problem. So I think the extra pulmonary are a lot harder to. Um, once they become clinical, you know it could be anywhere um, in the body. Now the subclinical, which are the most co- is the most common form, is if you're looking into you know um, subclinical fo- uh, falls in a farm, you'll find that most falls will have some sort of infection, right? They're all exposed after birth, and a large number of them will become infected. And they will, if you have the ultrasound out there and you're doing ultrasound of the chest every week or every month, you will find them because they do get these pulmonary lesions. They get abscesses. And before ultrasound, you know, those of, like myself, we are older than routine ultrasound. We used to do blood work. We used to monitor these falls early on by checking white blood cell and fibrinogen. Um, changes. And you could see that the white blood cells were coming up and the fibrinogen was coming up. And that's how we um, kind of like identified this subclinical falls. And it's scary. Like Laura mentioned earlier on, right? If you are the practitioner on the farm and now, you know, you see, I don't know, 60%, 80% of your falls, you can see abscesses in the lung. Um, it then, then it gets scary. But those falls, the large majority will go on. You know, if you're not looking, you can't find them, um, and they will go on and progress. You know, to full recover, like they will resolve those lesions. And it's usually, you know, it varies by farm, and you know, there's no rule that applies to all. But usually, it's 20 to 30 percent of those falls only that will develop a clinical pneumonia or a clinical disease. So it's not as many as we used to think.
1: So many treatment uh, strategies have been tried and tested, including macrolide monotherapy and combination therapies as well. And in the paper, you've discussed several different um, research studies. Would you be able to highlight what results were found in these studies?
3: Yeah, I think um, you know for the for the treatment, the biggest thing is I think before we get into the treatment, and it's gonna be mentioned here, you know, we try to make a huge point in the paper is we need to treat less, you know. So which falls um, we're gonna treat it depends on the farm. We don't have a solution that applied to all, but I think the the big consensus is we need to treat less number of falls so once you decide you know what that strategy is going to be based on size plus blood work plus you know knowing your farm then the the most common um, drug of you know the drug of choice right now is a combination of a macrolide either um, acetromycin or claritromycin those are the two most common ones and rifampin Um, and that's what you know is oral is Either once a day or you know twice a day, depending on on the combination you use. Um, and there's been a, a big discussion about because of the what we see in human literature about is this combination should we keep doing the combination of a macrolide and rifampin? Because that's not recommended in humans as much. And the answer is yes, based on what we know so far. Right? It's always subject to change because we keep on investigating. But um, based on what we know so far, there's advantage to that combination. One is we see less resistance. Uh, The combination is not inferior to a monotherapy like it is in, in humans. And the concentration of the drugs in the places where we care, which is the lining fluid of the lung and the BAL cells, the concentration we get on the drugs with that combination is well above the MIC for rhodococcus. So we should keep doing, you know, until we know more, the combination is what we recommend. Um, problem is, its treatment is, is long. Usually, you know, there's no less than four weeks of treatment to six weeks to eight weeks, depending on how um, severe the disease is. And each farm has a different protocol. And then... Um, there's the management of this falls. So if you have to do, you know, oral medication for a large farm, you pretty much finish your morning dose and you have to start mixing up your your afternoon dose. And then macrolides um, inhibit the ability of these falls to sweat. And that means that if you live in a place where it's hot and humid or even hot and dry, you have to bring in the falls inside during the day, let them out only during night. So that is a nightmare, um, Farm wise, you know, management wise, it gets expensive not only on the drug part, but on the management, the personnel moving mares and falls, and um, it becomes very problematic. So um, those are is, is why, you know, that's why also, you know, minimizing not treating a lot of falls that you don't have to is appealing to the farm. You know, I, I think it should at least be appealing to the farm. And then something to take into account is that these macrolides will inhibit the ability of falls to sweat for up to two weeks after treatment is discontinued. So it's not like today we finish the treatment and that fall can be kicked out to the field. Um, There still has to be, you know, management there. And then there are side effects, right? The side effects of this regular any fall that we put on antibiotics for prolonged periods of time. They get diarrhea. It's usually self-resolving, but some of them we have to discontinue treatment. And then there's this colitis that um, there's a risk for the mares. Now, that's been described a long time ago, and we don't see it very often, and it's been hard to replicate. So how much of that still persists, is, is we're not sure. I think we need more work on that area, but it's been described, so you have to be careful with that, too. Um so I think right now we are recommending the combination of treatment. There is new work on monotherapy. Monotherapy, I think, is very appealing because, again, back to the workload of treating all these falls. And uh, tulatromycin is the first do- drug that we we tested. is given IM you know, once a week and it works as long as it's in combination with rifampin. There's a new study that showed that it's non-inferior than to our macrolide rifampin other other combinations. Um, but it still have the rifampin that is daily. So it helps it decreases as IM. So some folks get some reactions and that can be um problematic, but because it's once a week um it's I think it's something we're going to see more um More used in in the near future. That combination alone, we don't recommend using tulatromycin, It's just not as effective. And then the last um, monotherapy is that gametromycin. Also was tried once a week, and um, the concentration on gametromycin alone, you know, and the and the comparison was very good. The problem is the false got. More severe reactions. So they have like 60% of the falls got some side effect. And out of those, you know, most of them, half and half, you know, were lame, a little lame or very lame. So this, you know, I don't think we're going to be able to use it as a first line of choice. Maybe for some falls that develop diarrhea, but the side effects are just something else to deal with when you're already dealing with roller So So, um, it will depend on, you know, every clinician can make choices. I don't think I will be using it, you know, as a first first line of choice just because of that. Um, I think on the treatment, you know, Laura mentioned some other antimicrobials that might be we might be able to use. But they're going to need some work. So right now, we only have this macrolide rifampin combination to use. And we need to be very careful at the rate we're seeing this resistance. Um, this is not going to work for us very, for, for longer. So we really need to get into treating less falls. Whatever we can all do to minimize that, um, it's going to get us much farther.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, moving on to prevention, uh, Macarena, is there any hope of a vaccine on the horizon? Um, and what difficulties have been found when trying to develop one?
3: Yeah, I think hope, you know, hope is something we, at least we researchers, never, you know, never give up on the hope. There's always hope. Uh, But we have to be realistic, right? Trying to develop a vaccine for a disease, I think it depends on on what the goal of that vaccine is. I don't think it's unlikely that the vaccine will prevent infection because these folks are infected right there, right, within that first week. So if the goal of the vaccine is to eliminate ultrasonographic lesions, that is going to be very hard to achieve. I think the goal of the vaccine is to improve that immunity to make recovery faster, you know, this subclinical falls heal faster and maybe less clinical falls develop because it's very hard to get two doses of vaccine in neonates. Neonates, when you vaccinate them, they just don't react as well. And that's true for kids, for other species. It's not unique to foals. So I think there is hope for vaccine. You know, it might be that we end up vaccinating mares to protect foals, you know. And again, the goal is to be improving the immune response, but it might not be that it's going to prevent infection. We don't really have a lot of vaccines in equine that prevent infection. So we have to be realistic. And also we're not going to cover 100% of, of... you know, not all vaccinated falls will respond the same way. So that's that's the hope and I think the challenges of, of vaccines. We've been trying, you know, and trying to develop these vaccines. Now, at least we understand that falls are infected very early in life, like, Within that first month, you know, like first week for sure, but we have a very short period of time. There's a lot of work that was done earlier when we thought falls were infected later. So we may have to relook at some of that, you know, back, those vaccines that we thought didn't work, and bring them back with the uh, infecting, you know, using younger falls, um, and that's something I think we're we're all looking into.
1: So since there's no vaccine available at the moment. Um, transfusion of high premium plasma is also a popular option. So, what's the up to date guidance on on using this this option, and when is it best to administer to the full?
3: Yeah, so I think it's plasma is what we have, and there are many studies that show you know there are many studies that show no effect, so there's still some controversy. But plasma products are not uniform and they're not. You know, unfortunately, they're not all made the same. Even when you look at the same batch, you know, bag after bag, they're very different. So that may account for some of the differences we see. Um, but we we do know that plasma um, speeds up that healing. So when we give plasma and infect falls, they take, you know, the lesions go away faster. Their white cell count doesn't get as high. Fibrinogen doesn't get as high. And we do see less clinical falls after that. Uh, Now, there's a lot more work that we need to do with plasma. I think there's going to be more coming up. Uh, Ideally, because we know that they get infected as they hit the ground, we recommend doing it right there, you know, right after birth, like within that day. Now, the volume is something we're looking into, you know, we usually give a liter and that has been working, but, you know, do we need to do more adverse? Do we need to do a litter once a week? Um, we don't know. And I think more work is coming on that. We are looking at plasma a lot more closely. Uh, but definitely, I think for endemic farms, there's a benefit. Now, plasma is not without risk. Um, there are plasma reactions that happened, although in healthy Falls, uh, they're less common, but they happen. They're not super severe for the most part. You know, it's just you have to slow down the the drip and start over, or maybe there will be the occasional fall that will not tolerate that, but it is not cheap. So it's expensive. Plasmas, hyperimmune plasmas, commercially available, you know, they're not available in all countries um, around the world. Um, We know that we can transfuse some unwanted viruses, you know, that's been more regulated now. And then there's the fact that you have to have a catheter and the time. So, again, it helps, but I can see why some people, you know, are a bit reluctant.
1: And obviously environmental factors play a big role in this disease. What guidance
3: can be given with this respect? Uh, I do think they do play a factor. As far as guidance, we are a bit short of guidelines because we don't have a lot of research. Even though there are a lot of papers out there, you know, describing, we know if it's if they're crowded, you know, if it's farms that have a lot of falls, more chances, higher incidence of disease. If it's dusty, you know, anything that uh, gets they are equi on an aerosolized form that increases. we don't have a lot of guidelines that we can give that are based on science. I don't, you know I, I think that's the kind of like a consensus that we reached. Uh, we still need to um, do more work, but minimizing the number of falls, of course, you know, try to minimize the the dust. But I wish we can say, yeah, you know, if you put three falls per pen that is this size, it will prevent our equi. We just don't have that. We don't have the data.
1: And, and lastly, um, chemoprophylaxis was discussed in your review um, and is a strongly discouraged option. So could you talk us through this and, and why that is?
3: Yeah, I think chemoprophylaxis is it's just basically treating all the falls. For a while, we... And and still, unfortunately, there are still farms with this practice is treat every fall, you know, for the first two weeks or three weeks or four weeks of life. And then you can prevent disease from happening. And that is true. If you treat every single fall in the farm, you probably won't see disease. But you will see a lot of resistance over time. And then you will see disease with resistant strains. And those falls, we know for facts, based on research, they are a lot more likely to die, like 10 times more likely to die. We don't have treatments for those falls. And um, Laura talked at length about, you know, this may not only stay with our equine; it might go on to other bacteria. So I still talk to practitioners, you know, um, that, that have this. And I understand the pressure from the owner, I do understand that, but um, still, I think this one we really need to push to get away from doing like mass or blanket prophylaxis of antibiotics. There isn't much to be gained. It might look like a huge, you know, uh, advantage for this year and next year for the right now, but it's not a good practice for the future, even for that one farm. It's just, we should not go there. I We used to say that, but now based on all the work that mostly, you know, the group that Laura is on have done on resistance, now we know for a fact. So before we didn't have the data, now we do. There is no more excuses, I don't think, for this. And lastly, with
1: respect to ultrasonographic screening, are there now updated guidelines on how to interpret and treat pulmonary lesions?
3: Um, We we don't have guidelines that will, uh, because every farm, it's its own island, right? So we don't, we can't really say if they measure, you know, 10 centimeters treat or don't treat. What we do know is we, and I think that's, that can apply to every farm, you know, if you see a small lesions, you know, one centimeter, two centimeter, those you're very safe not treating. Uh, you can use ultrasound screening to follow up, you know, to keep track, but then we should all aim for, you know, trying to see what is the the most I can push treatment. And we see all these publications coming up, you know, people start saying if there are six centimeters and we don't treat, nothing happens. So in the next year, move on to seven centimeters. Now farms in Kentucky, you know some of the research coming out of there. They presented, you know, they don't treat if they're about 10 centimeters, and they add white cell count and fibrinogen count. So I think every farm will have to find their point, um, you know, when do we treat, um, and develop their own their own type of screening that works best with the idea of minimizing. The the data recently presented, you know, in um, out of Kentucky shows that if you set up a you know kind of like a score that is in the middle and you use white cell count and fibrinogen, they drop the treatment for fifty percent of the farm, right? So they have half of the treatments with no increase in mortality, and they're planning off on increasing you know the white cell count and the fibrinogen and the number for that ultrasound next year and see how much can you push this this falls before you start treatment. Um, I think it's going to be farm to farm, but I, I do think we have to start, you know, making that, those, those recommendations um, to, you know, to minimize the amount that they're being treated.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, this is a question for everyone, really, taking everything into consideration in the paper. Um, what's your take-home Kind of significant take-home messages for practitioners dealing with these cases. So I, I
0: think I can start answering that. Um, for the standpoint of antimicrobial resistance, and Macarena has been very thorough um, mentioning the the approach that we need to take now with the, with the farms, but. One thing that I would like to say is that our collaborative e- efforts with practitioners and farms um, to try to understand antimicrobial resistance development and ways to mitigate it have been so important. And it has generated huge amounts of data that will be uh, very critical for us track these events over time and our main job here as researchers um, and also predictioners are is to track these trends and try to inform practices the best we can so my recommendation is uh is that we continue uh these great collaborate collaborative efforts which we have been continuing those with uh, with farms in the u.s uh, to try to preserve the efficacy of antimicrobials and protect the health of animals and potentially also humans.
1: Okay, thank you. And Angela, did you want to, to add anything there? Uh, yes, yeah, so from,
2: from my perspective, um, so we do we need a vaccine to protect foals against our equi, but as Macarena said, no vaccine will be 100% effective and will work for foals everywhere. Um, but we do definitely need that. Um, and there's also evidence that antibodies um, passively transferred to foals can protect against our equis, so it would be helpful to explore ways to improve both the effectiveness of the hyperimmune plasmas and also um, alternative um, to provide antibodies to foals. So our laboratory um, works with both vaccines and approaches to improve safety of these antibody-based products. And as I mentioned earlier, also, focusing on innate immunity and better understanding, um, ways, how this, you know, mechanisms that help, uh, protect foes and to improve vaccines and also develop broad, you know, broad range vaccines. And I also wanted to just take the opportunity to thank everyone, um, veterinarians and also donors that support equine research, because we need that. Um, that's why we are able to continue advancing our knowledge, um, about this disease and how we can protect falls.
3: Can I can I add just a one more thought there? Of course, Okay, so I think um, also the fact that that this type of of technology, you know, like or or distribution is available now, the opportunities we get to talk to practitioners more directly, not so much only at conferences or only the people that have the time to read the paper. I think this has opened up, at least that's the feedback I get from practitioners, you know, that they haven't heard so much about the problem and they don't know that they're not supposed to be treating, you know, every single fall, or they are not aware that a lot of these falls will heal on their own. So I think having these conversations in a way that are more accessible to everybody has made a huge difference. I I really, by talking to practitioners, I really feel that I am thankful that we have these opportunities and that we, you know, on the research side of things can come and communicate um, to everybody these things, because otherwise what we do doesn't make any sense. You know, yeah, it makes out for a good paper, but then it doesn't uh, transcend. We don't want to do it just for the paper. We want to make an, an impact on, you know, on the day-to-day practice. So, um, the distribution of information, I think, is fantastic.
1: Absolutely, I'm. I'm really pleased that you feel you feel like that. And Angela, I think you have one more thing to to add. Ah, uh, yeah.
2: So I would like to also add um, that our um, co-author, um, Dr. Noah Cohen, he couldn't be here today, but so I would like to actually thank him for bringing um, Laura and Macarena. Um, Together with me, because (laughs) I feel like we have a lot, you know, to collaborate. We have a lot that we can work together um, with practitioners and donors and, and, you know, just combine our teams. I think that will be
1: a great thing. Perfect. Well, Laura Macarena and Angela, thank you very much. I really appreciate appreciate you all finding a time because you're all in different places. So finding a time that's um, agreeable to everybody to join us, and I'm really pleased that you found value in in talking us through this review, um, and hopefully spreading this information. So thank you again for joining us.
0: Thank you thank so much for having us. Yeah. This was yeah. this was very uh, informative, I think, and hopefully will help. Uh, vets out there to to better um, and to you know uh, improve their way of practice and and get uh, more information more accessible.
1: Yeah, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Great, thank you. Thanks again for joining us, and please tune in for our August episode of EVJ and Conversation podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to this Equine Veterinary Channel podcast. More about the subjects discussed today can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com
3: forward slash journal forward slash EVJ.